Welcome to the third episode of Shortcast Over Coffee. This episode is a continuation of episode 2, my conversation with Krish Ashok. In this episode we talk about food, modern medicine versus homeopathy and veganism. Hope you enjoy. Yeah. And I think this this not having documentation also applies to food. We we now we know we know what Sumerians ate for breakfast 5000 years ago. Okay? we have a single digit number of cookbooks in the last 3000 years in all of india for a for a for a part of the world that has some of the greatest uh food in the world we have absolutely nothing yeah i mean while researching for this podcast i was looking up uh, cookbooks written That's in it. india it'll all go and back could, to the same monosola sir yes i could, yeah i could find that and i could find samatha samaytapare and mishtana park in bengali yes. and so on samaytapare is basically just less than a century ago oh okay right i mean that was meenakshi amma right yeah right so so when did you start developing interest in food when did you start cooking was it when you started cooking I mean, or you had it yeah well in the sense that you know most guys you know develop an interest in in eating and food when they are teenagers i suppose right that's when you suddenly huge get hungry appetites. for everything yeah huge appetites and so on uh, uh, but then you know i was also about the time when i started to learn to cook my mother had a a transferable job and you know i was the elder son so she taught me how to cook right uh, and then when i went to the us i ended up learning uh, uh from uh, from a few other older people in the family i wrote down recipes and so on i that was sort of like the inception of my thought process that there's something wrong with trying to document this kind of knowledge is recipes because it misses the it misses the fact that many of these good cooks don't think in recipes they think in heuristics and algorithms and meta models and for them rasam is not one recipe it's it's a whatever is whatever ingredients i have i can turn it into a sambar or a sam or whatever it is i have a broad set of algorithms and and that that was sort of like the inception for masala lab if you will okay and and we in in our family and i know most families in south india talk about this thing called satvik food uh, is there yeah. any merit to satvik food or is it just glorified no it's it's it's, it's sort of like you know um it's basically a way of uh, creating a caste system with food and saying that this is this is superior food and all you other peasants uh, are eating inferior food and it may it, it gives you bad qualities uh, and so on right i mean you look at the definition of satvik food uh, uh, not particularly very tasty food right i mean no onion no garlic and you know uh, there's no enjoyment in life it's fine I mean, you make the choice you do it but but i think the the definition is almost the definition of satvik food does not make sense unless there is a tamasic food uh that has to be a bad for you to then declare it good right uh and so there's actually no basis there is actually no scientific basis to it being any better or uh, any such thing it's largely just a cultural marker of of the sort of general tendency over the last 2000 years to look down on meat eating look down on eating practices of people who are not from the upper caste or hindu society right so it is so that's essentially so i have people get very upset when i tell them that well it's it's casteist but you know i'm i'm not calling you casteist uh, it's just that i don't buy into the satvik food because it's built on this edifice of caste uh, i am okay with you not seeing caste in it and using it to eat healthy Uh, right a, a satvik lifestyle can genuinely help you stay healthy it's a lot of fresh vegetables i mean uh, you you're not eating too much saturated fat i think it's great uh, uh, etc yes you you can deprive yourself of a lot of uh, good food and so on but that's fine i mean it it helps you it helps you right so in that sense yes 
So, but then you know, if you're using it to as a moral cudgel to look down on what others eat, um, I think that's you know quite silly. And I think there's also been a modern tendency to try and apply it in random new modern contexts that originally anyway nobody had a clue about, right? They'll say sattvic food cannot be cooked in a microwave, cannot like who who whoever wrote about those things two thousand years ago didn't know what microwave is or what a refrigerator was, right? Uh, but yeah, so there's always this retroactive. Uh, we have applying those older ideas in modern context and that's sometimes hilarious right uh, it rarely doesn't fit and people have to cherry pick right uh, so people will say ayurvedic uh, ayurvedic method and so on right uh, how many people know that a mega ton of ayurvedic remedies for so many diseases is deer meat deer meat is the most holy meat in uh, food in in hindu culture it was sita's favorite food the number of times deers are hunted and fed and and they she makes uh, basically deer biryani right so it's called mamsodana right and uh, in, in sanskrit in the ramayana is like insane number of times right um, and every few times every few times she has a dialogue she's like praising the 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 brilliance of venison meat and so on uh, and why do you think maricha uh, was a deer right you think she wanted to keep a pet no she wanted to eat that damn thing, right? Um, so I think you know people forget those kinds of things and they very cherry pick. So alcohol and medicine were the most common Ayurvedic medicines. People just people now want to say no, no, it's only about the herbs, right? Because now apparently it's inconvenient if if you suddenly want to slaughter some deer uh, and eat its heart uh, to cure some you know disease, right? Um, and likewise, I think garlic was also a huge part of uh, uh, Ayurvedic cures, right? You know the funny thing, just Google for the Bauer manuscript. Okay, B O W E R. This this guy found it in somewhere in Afghanistan or some somewhere in uh, that part of the world. One of the oldest Sanskrit texts we know in Devanagari ever. Okay, um, and what is it about? It's a love poem to garlic, saying that this is the most amazing thing on the planet, that it can cure everything. Right. It's a complete treatise on on garlic. Right. And and now you think about that garlic being tamasic and all of that. So it's actually quite funny, right? So you know, I I. Uh, I think there is you can I think you can appreciate and celebrate and, and be interested in your history. Uh, but I think you know if you want to suddenly take that and try to force fit it into the modern world, you know, it, it's going to be funny. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned Ayurveda and tradition and and all that. Uh, I know in Bengal there is this thing called Koimachir Ganga Vijamna where they purposely sort of mishmash flavors, uh, yep. like. One one fish is fried with mustard sauce and the other with chili. I think. Yes. Uh, yes. And and in Ayurveda we have this thing where you know you're not supposed to mix foods or mix contrasting yeah. flavors. Yeah. Uh, yes. I I find it very ironic because sometimes yes. the contrast is what gives it gives the taste, right? Exactly. Yep. Yep. So what do you have so to take? again? As I said. So again, it's a classic thing of. Um, so I think there is so people's. we are taking modern day ayurvedic practitioners interpretation of what they meant 2000 years ago um, and their word for it that no 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 you must not mix right under any conditions right so first we have to establish that so in a way i think you know what happens is that in a, in in any of these discourses the moment you say no no they were wrong 2000 years ago i think that that you lose people that way uh you know nobody wants to hear that the the sort of the holistic wellness system that underpins the indian diet and nutrition culture for the last 2000 years was wrong of course it was not yeah i mean it was it was a product of its times and it made sense then and by the way people never wrote things down 
and things changed over time. So I have often found it easier to basically say, to question whether some of these people, whether what you're saying is even Ayurveda at all, right? Or at the very least, it is your interpretation, okay? Um, and you can say, yes, I'm referring to that text. And by the way, who reads Sanskrit? Who understands all of that? You're probably reading an English translation. Who, who, who says the English translation was correct? That Sanskrit is notoriously hard to translate. And so many things have been mistranslated. Uh, the words can have multiple meanings and you're taking it out of context. We have no way of knowing whether that particular phrase and that word meant the same thing 2000 years ago. You have no way of knowing. So therefore, the first thing to establish is this sort of establish the fact that you in this modern day saying Ayurveda according to Ayurveda, you are speaking in the modern context. You have nothing to do with the past as much as I do. Okay, So you are claiming it, but I, I would deeply question that. So... Now, if you really step back and think about it, look, there were different times. There was no electricity. Uh, there was no uh, uh, there, there was no sort of pasteurization of milk uh, and, and so on. Um, we didn't have, we also didn't have the knowledge of things like microbes and so on. So a lot of that knowledge was practical knowledge based on the fact that if you kept fish out for a while and then you ate it, you're going to get sick. Uh, if you keep milk out for half an hour, one hour, it's going to go bad, right? Uh, um, and so people evolved a lot of careful practices making to make sure that people were not food poisoned. Right? Now, the problem is that that over 2000 years can be, can be misinterpreted, distorted, amplified. Some things can be selectively chosen. Some things can be muted. Look, you know, 1960s or something or 70s when Elvis Presley died, there was a funeral. It was on TV. Uh, and uh, his, there is a burial. There's a gravestone. And there's still billions of people in the U.S. who believe Elvis didn't die, right? You, we just if you if we can't fix this in 50 years or say 60 years, how much distortion do you think is going to happen? Like 2,000 years, right? I think you know people sometimes forget that. So in that sense, I really think I think you have to look at it in that context. It might have made those rules may have made sense in that context in that part of India. It may not have been Bengal. How do you know, right? Uh, so. It's possible that nobody in Bengal 2000 years had a problem with mixing fish either. How do you know? You have no way of knowing, right? So now suddenly people are saying, no, it is universal. I'm going to apply whatever that one rule for everyone. At least North and South don't even agree on what is hot and cold foods. Because every region is different. And there is nothing wrong about that. It is just that the region is different. The weather is different. The, the foods are different. For starters, nobody in North India would have even tasted some of the vegetables that grow only in South India. Only now we have markets where you can get, get everything everywhere. Even right now, it's not easy to find a raw banana in a Delhi uh, sabji bandi, right? right? So so the point is that I think uh, you have to look at it that way. And so therefore, first disconnect that connection to the past that people claim. And then let's talk as what makes sense today, right? Right. Uh, if you eat it, am I am I becoming sick? Are millions of people who are eating that combination have they fallen sick in the last fifty years? That's a long enough day, uh, time for you to have clinical data. And if that's not the case, just go about doing what you want. So I think yeah. that's the way to think about it, right? So I don't want to give people who who claim to be Ayurvedic people the exclusive right to claim ownership over that history. I want to challenge them and say I don't think you know. I'm not saying I know. Let's both say that we have no clue.
that is the first honest thing to do and then we can speak as people who are contemporary not with some you are creating this artificial tether to the past based on mistranslations and distortions and lost knowledge and oral transmission and english translations um, and and so on hey, uh, like the panchatantra getting translated from sanskrit to persian to arabic to persian and then back to sanskrit i mean come on you know how many how many change stories you, do you think would have changed right yeah yeah i think one of the other things that Uh, families in india have is this thing called i don't know this is a very malayalam term it's called ottamuli so what what ottamuli is for for people who don't who can't understand is that it's a single fix medicine like it's one medicine that can cure everything so for instance if i fall sick uh, with common cold or fever my mom would yeah just give me chukka kapi or like rasam yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. What does it actually do? Does it actually cure yeah. fever or inflammation, or what does it actually yeah. do? No, I think so. The first thing people sort of don't realize about how medicine works, uh, and again, and, and I'm saying this as purely someone who sort of studied biology in high school and did a medical entrance. I'm not a doctor uh, in any sense, right? But I had a good enough biology teacher to sort of uh, understand this, and I speak to doctors when I create my content for Instagram and so on. is that i think the fundamental error that people often make is the the causal agent error uh meaning that we are all wired to think that there are simple straightforward single causal agents for things right you didn't get married mars is in the wrong place in your horoscope you know that's obviously an extreme sort of nonsensical example but i think if people do that right you are unwell you eat ginger you get well uh so ginger must have done the trick is the correlation that has come from years and years and years and it's it's orally transmitted knowledge right uh the problem is that people don't realize that if you did not have that ginger and let's say you were not from south india or you from some part of the world where ginger is not a thing right and uh, maybe in that part of the world it was some other thing some flower local flower buttercup or something that you had to eat and again you got well and that that culture will say yes it's buttercup that actually uh, did the trick the reality is that there might have been some part of the world where the guy ate absolutely nothing and still got well right because the nature of illness is that your body tries to fix itself okay that's just how we are built right the bulk of curing you is not medicine even in modern medicine unless it's a very specific surgical intervention uh, that prevents you from dying and all of that your body cures itself of all chronic conditions we are designed as a self repair mechanism right the goal is to make sure that you're giving it uh, the right inputs and not stressing it so that you're not stopping it from curing itself that's all you're doing so what happens is that when you fall sick automatically people stop giving you fried food uh, they give you simple easy to digest food uh, they cut down the oil they cut down frying they cut down a bunch of these other things that could be allergens and irritants and all these kind of things and they give you stuff simple carbs that are easy to eat uh with micronutrients and so on uh so your body your immune system is focused on the job at hand of curing your problem right uh and then things you 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 even when you take a thing like a paracetamol a paracetamol is not actually curing your disease all it's doing is lowering your temperature um and it is a it is a painkiller for it's an analgesic right for, for, for from an inflammation why is there inflammation the inflammation is there to cure your problem actual problem that's what your in, immune system is doing right uh and it's just that i think you know people uh so ginger particularly is interesting because uh you'll have ginger for a bad throat pepper and ginger for a bad throat uh because pepper and ginger are actually throat irritants 
so because they uh, they have molecules that uh, irritate the nerves uh, in the throat right and but they are temporary irritants so but what happens is that when they irritate your throat your brain now has to divide its attention between your actual throat problem and the pepper and ginger irritation problem so temporarily you feel relief uh, because it's dealing with another problem right um, and hopefully your body is figuring out a cure for that while that's happening so you keep swigging ginger and you're counter irritating um and your brain is dividing its attention while parallelly your body is fixing that problem and over time you're like oh man yeah that felt good and so it's the ginger that did the trick right and this is by the way this is also why uh, quack medicine systems like homeopathy still survive because most day to day conditions just fix themselves um sometimes just people lead unhealthy lives and so it takes a little bit longer uh, if people may be diabetic it might take a little longer their pure immunity it might take a little bit longer lifestyle stresses and so on uh and it's just that people think no it's that medicine that medicine is literally nothing it's just a sugar tablet that's it you know, the, the principle of homeopathy is to dilute things down to absolute nothingness it is like violation of the fundamental laws of chemistry right but yet people vehemently believe it made a difference because they're not giving their own body the credit that's what this is right yeah my i mean to people uh i talk to about homeopathy they are like it works what about that you know i mean they don't really yeah. think about uh, why it yeah. worked or it why works. it did not work yeah. yeah correct so because that is why this is precisely why in modern medicine or evidence based medicine a drug has to pass that test that's what a double blind trial is right yeah. a double blind trial essentially has to address for all of these biases one it has to answer the question uh does it show improvement right by the way it has to show improvement compared to a population who has not been given that drug but with the same condition it has to show a relative improvement over the the part of the population that was given the placebo so that's the first thing second thing is that it also has to prove that any other condition any other variable that you may have uh, that could have fixed the problem that has to be controlled for right so it when you do that test people cannot take like say four drugs at a time they cannot like say take a very special diet etc etc no 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 it all has to be controlled for otherwise the drug test is is not a, is not passed right the problem is that if you just do a double bind test for ginger and pepper and turmeric and all these other things they will fail these uh, double blind tests again it's possible some of them will pass but the problem is that the establishment does not want to do that because that would that would you know that would result in a revenue loss of uh, uh, so many you know thousands of crores right that's the problem yeah i think it's high time just like how you mentioned about music the john the the boundaries between genres are sort of Uh, yeah, going yeah. away it, it should be the same with medicine as well like there should not be any ayurveda or allopathy it should just no, be modern medicine should, or evidence based it should based. be a, it, it should be evidence based medicine right and there's a good chance if everyone goes through the double blind test who knows how many amazing uh, herbal medicines we might uncover uh, from tribal communities and local communities that have tremendous ecological local knowledge uh Uh, and so on let's say, remember that we extract most of the compounds that we use in our drugs from plants like it's not like we made them in a lab we, they're too complicated we extract them from plants right and uh, 
so so for example the new the recent chinese willow uh, uh, thing that used in traditional chinese medicine uh the people finally agreed to do a double blind test and it turned out to be tremendously successful for malaria right and so now it's going to become a, a evidence based drug for malaria as well and it originated in traditional chinese medicine and yet we don't have a single example of a modern medicine that originated in an ayurvedic cure which is silly all you have to do is is do those double blind tests right yeah and i think in in india i don't know about other states but kerala might be the only state where the government opens homeopathy medical colleges no no there is a ministry of ayush they're doing it everywhere oh okay <laughs> very interesting yeah so yeah i mean, i i know i mean for for a state with that much education i think the belief in uh, these other uh, medical systems alternative medicine is actually scarily high uh, and again it's a weird thing right so they have this uh, allopathy pharmacy and uh, you know siddha pharmacy right the term allopathy actually refers to a very quack based uh, medical system before evidence based medicine came if no doctor today should agree to be being called an allopathic doctor it's complete nonsense yeah anyway right yeah now moving on to uh, food again um, i have this small anecdote uh that i have to tell you uh of how i got interested in in you know trail of food and and how food sort of transcended boundaries um i think it was 2014 or 2015 i was on a solo trip to new york and uh the a train uh the subway broke down and then uh i got down at the station called nostrand avenue uh and uh, i'm a vegetarian so i got out and i was looking for vegetarian food in the area and there was this place called a and a double and roti shop um i was not sure what it was and I, i just went in there was it was not an indian store but it had roti in its in its name so i was yeah. like why not and i got this thing called doubles okay and uh, i tried it and it was Caribbean, it was guess, yeah yeah it it was great yeah. and it was oddly enough it was reminding me of chole bhature and i was yeah. asking i asked the person you know where he's from and then what is this dish and he said that this is roti and we we put chana masala inside and I, i asked him where where are you from and he said trinidad so yeah. i mean it's it's fascinating how indian food or indian curry as britishers yes. like to call it made its way yes. all all the way to trinidad and and yeah. obviously having followed cricket you know um, i know you know there are a lot of there were a lot of indian slaves who 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 went to trinidad but but talking about curry itself uh, how did the word curry become so popular like how did what are sort of the first sort of traces of indian curry going abroad no i think the the, the word itself originally goes back to old tamil right i mean uh, uh, curry usually refers to a, a meat gravy a spicy meat gravy is what curry is right so tamil nadu you can you can still hear it in the village side so curry sapringla means that you know like it's usually a chicken mutton or a or a beef thing right uh, and uh, uh, over over time uh, i think the uh, the portuguese who kind of then first started taking back these spices and so on because the most of those spices kind of came from the south right they came from kerala and tamil nadu and so on uh, so they they started to apply those same things when those spices were used uh, in in european cooking so they caril or something c a r i l and then 
that eventually in Europe kind of became curry. So anything, any kind of dish that came from this part of the world became a curry. Um, and then the British, over you know, post-industrial revolution uh, really embraced this uh, uh, as uh, Bangladeshi sort of silhetti sailors uh, started starting opening these curry curry houses, if you will, right, uh, uh, in England. Uh, and again, uh, basically, it, originally it was too spicy for them, but then... Uh, uh, it became a thing amongst the in in the in the 20th 21st century uh, for young football fans uh, to watch football fans and then come back after their team has won not lost or whatever it is fully drunk uh, and eat and uh, the thing about alcohol is that it actually mutes your taste buds so um, after that Indian food is perfect uh, even if you're like super spice sensitive because you know it's now it's it's it hits the right spot when you're like uh, uh, when you're fully drunk, right? The the Japanese curry again is of not directly of Indian origin, but actually of British origin, right? So they introduce the curry powder, uh, and then clearly the British send Indian indentured uh, uh, sort of indentured slaves to all over the world, right? I mean, so they found it convenient to take a moral high ground when the Industrial Revolution happened uh, to be against slavery. Till that point, they were pro-slavery. So once um, actual horsepower and engines uh, looked like a better idea than actual human power, uh, they're like, oh, no, 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 now slavery is bad. So, But obviously, they re recognize that uh, machines can't fix everything and you still, uh, sugarcane is still notoriously, you know, labor intensive and, and cotton is still notoriously labor intensive. So they obviously, I think they found uh, exploited uh, Dalits and lower caste communities in India and they just sent them all over, right? And that's the origin of people in Suriname, in Guyana, in the Caribbean, in Trinidad, um, particularly, right? Um, uh, in, in Malaysia, in, in Sri Lanka, right? And Fiji, so many yeah. places. Fiji, yeah, you name it, yes. Yeah. Mauritius, Reunion, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there any difference between the ingredients that goes into a Japanese curry from from... British. So it's basically no, it's just a curry powder that they use, and then the rest of the preparation is very Japanese. It's Japanese rice, and then uh, a lot of vegetables and meat uh, and everything else, and it's also like super spicy. Uh, so you can customize the spice, um, and uh, they also add uh, flour, maida, uh, into that so that it has that sort of like a, a thick a glaze-like texture, which they like, uh, and and so that's what goes into the Japanese curry. Yes. Okay. So so what are the subtle differences between uh, whole spices? I mean, things that go into a curry. Um, a different recipes talk about, you know, first roasting the spices and then blending, uh, you know, powdering them. Yeah. And yeah. some of the other recipes talk about just, just add coriander powder. So what is yeah. the difference? Like, when should one use whole spices versus powdered spices really no such the thing is that i think you know people overthink these things uh so the broad principle are that that the whole spice is going to have the maximum flavor uh but if you roast it it's going to have even more flavor then it's going to release a lot more of the aromatics that are trapped inside uh and so on right and so whole spices you want to either heat them in oil or dry roast them Right, okay. either way, or you do both, right? Uh, but if you're making a powder out of the whole spices, then dry roast them, right? So you get the uh, more intense flavor, if you will. And again, it varies. Sometimes you don't want that intense flavor. Uh, you can go, just go straight, right? It, you know, uh, cumin is a big difference. Uh, cumin I, with dania actually doesn't make much of a difference, but cumin, roasted cumin powder and just cumin powder, very different things. 
uh, because the people like to roast it really brown uh partially black almost and and then use that powder at least in chaat and all that they use like really really bhuna jeera powder and so on so there's just different flavors and i think different regions and different dishes the person with that recipe by say this is what i want and this is what what i want you to do it's really just completely arbitrary right so it doesn't really uh, it's just that every every spice comes with its unique flavor profile and you combine them like uh, if you're a maharashtrian or a bengali cuisine they tend to combine spices that are contrasting in flavors uh in mughlai avadi uh, cooking they tend to combine spices that are more sort of work together uh, with similar flavor molecules and so these are just sort of you know flavor phase is higher in in bengali and maharashtrian food uh, a, a lot uh, smaller in say mughlai or avadi food uh, and so on right so these are just so as i said there are no universal rules so if you're using a powder remember that if you're adding it to a gravy you're going to lose most of that aroma to the air by the time the 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 cooking is done right uh and you're not actually going to have it inside the dish because many of these flavors are fat soluble and not water soluble right unless your dish has a lot of oil uh, a lot of that aroma is going to go away right so which is why we add garam masala right at the end so you don't actually lose some of those because those are the more expensive spices um and and so you you uh, you add it at the end the really really aromatic stuff right kasuri methi and garam masala and so on right so that's that's it and uh, and if you do really really want to lock in the flavor you add it to the oil you add the whole spice to the oil because if you add the powdered spice it will burn so so that's why you add the whole spice this that's really all there is to it the combinations themselves are regional um, and purely every chef uh, defines a different mix uh, that they like right and i was looking at uh, some of your cooking videos on youtube and and i noticed one particular thing that i don't see in other cooking videos is that you use alcohol in indian cooking yes what is the what is the secret behind using alcohol it's 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 not like alcohol has never been used in indian cooking let's just you know alcohol has probably not been used in upper caste indian cooking let's just say that right uh, uh, it is very very common in tribal communities in in rural andhra uh toddy chicken is a thing i mean uh kallu uh, is used to was used was used to make appam in kerala come on right i mean till yeast and baking powder became a thing you got the yeast from the kallu right um and uh, uh kallu chicken or toddy chicken and toddy mutton and all that was a big thing in south india right so it's not we were not using it. it's just that the puritanical nature of the british working with the upper caste essentially made many of these diverse practices less known that's all right uh, so in that sense i think alcohol serves uh, like it's it's a it's a it's a fantastic solvent uh, and it really gets a lot more flavor out of spices uh, and by the time the cooking is done the actual alcohol is actually evaporated so it's not like you're actually eventually adding alcohol yeah i i think one of the things that i that i know is that portuguese when they came to india uh, they did not have vinegar and they used toddy vinegar or or some yeah. sort of an alcohol from toddy to marinate their chicken yeah yeah yes so fenny and you know the the they would make the wine from uh, cashew apple or uh, or coconut uh, and so on the the fenny and right and that that would be used and that is still used in in goa actually yeah oh okay. right and eventually i think eventually once they started bringing their own wine and uh, the wine would obviously become uh, oxidized here and uh, Uh, it would turn into vinegar right so uh, uh, vinegar is basically sour wine right it's it's fermented wine right right it's a different bacteria and that once that bacteria gets in there is no rescuing wine and wine will become vinegar right? 
So mm. vinegar originates in wine. Yeah. Okay. So, so what do you think is the most overrated dish in India? I think it's so it's hard to. So these are all like for example, I think most of the. I would think what generally uh, serves as the definition of Indian food uh, in the West, right? Purely as a historical accident of the first generation of people going there and setting up restaurants, just happened to be like Punjabis, if you will. Uh, and I hesitate to call it Punjabi food because it's it's not like your traditional home cooked Punjabi food. It's restaurant generic North Indian Punjabi category of food, uh, which which I personally think is uh, the fact that everyone around the world thinks that that's what Indian food is, is is a, is the sort of thing that I would say makes it a bit overrated, meaning overrated. that it's because, you know, you know, even in India, you go to any restaurant, you get that, that, that those issues, right? In the butter chicken, paneer tikka, masala, uh, butter naan category of uh, dishes uh, in a country with so much culinary variation and so on. Uh, it's in general, I think the small minority of dishes that happen to be restaurant friendly. A restaurant-friendly dish is basically things that can be prepared ahead of time, uh, can be rapidly put together, uh, easy to train an inexperienced cook, is what that is, right? So that's why you won't get, like, say, parpusli uh, or a or a or a or say Maharashtrian stuffed bindi is not something you will get in a restaurant because it's very laborious and takes time. Only your grandmother will make it, right? So in general, I think everything that serves as the small number of dishes that serve as restaurant-friendly dishes, those end up being the overrated uh, dishes for the most part. Right. And, and and I also get this feeling that a lot of recipes or spices, just because they were not the most mass-produced friendly, uh, probably would have even died down, right? I mean, maybe some of yeah. the recipes from the 40s and the 50s, because they were right. so labor-intensive, they are probably yeah. not yeah, made in... Yeah. And not written down. Um, and then as... Uh, People started living in, um, in nuclear families. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. 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 And so I live in the U.S. and uh, U.S. grad students, especially in universities that are not in major cities, find really difficult to, uh, you know, get Indian vegetables and curry leaves and, and so on. So what's an you... Indian vegetable? I mean, uh, I'm talking about like curry leaves or bitter. 80% of what? 80% of the vegetables eaten in India were introduced in the last 100 years. Right. Okay. So a carrot and, and cabbage and uh, and cauliflower. And uh, so barring the gourds and a few uh, roots, right? I, I mean, even the famous Kerala tapioca is you know, originally from Brazil, came to Africa, then from Africa came to this during the, the, the reign of one of the Travancore Maharajas when uh, they had a rice shortage and it was used as a, introduced as a, as a crop on the advice of the British East India Company resident uh, uh, as a way to get the poorest of the poor to to not die from starvation, right? So that they could just grow the kappa around their houses and then, you know, catch the fish from the backwaters. And uh, that's that's what became kappa meme, right? So that so basically, I think, the, uh, or kappa meme for that matter. Right? So I think it is a... Uh, so yeah, so in that sense, I think... And the other point, again, as I, as I say about the pav bhaji, right? I mean, you can make Indian food out of anything. So you can actually go get any vegetable you want. Uh, you can go to any supermarket. There'll be a spices section. And I'm absolutely certain you can get the whole spices that you need to make an Indian spice mix. Sure. Uh, you know, curry leaf is a uh, 
is a particularly sore point for south indians because it's it's a it's an irreplaceable uh, aroma and flavor that uh, that you will simply not get with any other ingredient but typically north indian food you can make with ingredients you find at walmart uh, right. that's been my experience so right. you can buy pepper you can buy cumin you can buy many of these other spices and then you grind them and make your own garam masala and you're done yeah you can, because mexican cuisine is big on cumin right it's big on coriander you can get all of them right yeah growing up in a south indian household i did not understand the value of curry leaves uh, till i came yes. to the us because yeah, it makes a yes. massive difference i mean yes. a dish without curry if you're leaves, in the south if you're in the south you can grow it but uh, yeah not otherwise yeah not otherwise so i i know that i know that all the indians living in florida absolutely grow their own curry leaves yes yeah yeah they 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 have like coconut palms and and what not in in their backyard yeah, yeah. especially yes. south yes. of florida yes yeah yeah i mean it's it's great to see uh, how well masala lab is doing i find it in libraries in in the us uh, yes. san jose you know sunnyvale yeah. and 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 it's it's very very popular so kudos so to there's that. actually a, a north america a hardcover edition coming out later this year Oh. so so with with more professional illustrations and more tables and more uh, graphics and uh, and hard bound more uh, higher quality uh, not exactly coffee table but still a more premium uh, a version of the book uh, oh fantastic yeah, yeah. Yes. are you do you have plans for uh, for another book i well i mean i mean you know been thinking about it I, at least my publisher has been nudging me towards it but uh, you know uh, not really put pen to paper yet Okay okay awesome but masala lab is doing great i'm i'm following your instagram channel it that that's doing pretty pretty well as well but i would like to end the show on a slightly controversial note um so i, I told some of my friends that uh, i'm going to interview you as as my next guest and uh, she pointed me to one of your posts from april 26 this year uh, it oh. was about um, you know veganism and and meat eating and all of that and then <laughs> and then uh, yeah. it, it's fascinating you got quite a few responses for that post and then yeah. uh, oh, by uh, I, i i don't read comments so in general yeah, yeah. so uh, other people think that oh my god so many comments i said no, i don't actually i i might engage with comments for the first 10 or 15 minutes and then i stop yeah 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 i mean you got quite a few comments i think this is probably your most yes. engaged post um you end yeah. the post by saying reducing the complexity of food systems to shallow social media virtue signaling helps no one we all need yeah. to try and do better to make food systems sustainable and ethical um so yes. so so my question is that what do you think about the rise of veganism and veganism being tied to sustainability and this whole holier than thou narrative that uh yeah. veganism sometimes bring in i think the i think the vast majority of uh, vegans are are actually great and lovely people who who are actually doing good for the planet uh, I, i think any individual who's who's generally consuming less meat and less dairy uh, is doing well for the planet i think there is just no doubt about it there is just no uh, this thing about it at all i purely have a problem with people who judge others choices for it because i think that that the problem is that it's that tiny percentage of those vegan activists who uh, and there are again two categories of activists i have some good friends who are who are vegans whose activism is let me create content that makes life easier for vegans some fantastic recipes how to to replicate the taste exactly in a vegan sense and so i said that's fantastic because 
you're actually going to encourage someone who may not be vegan to try it out one day and every day someone who's not eating meat uh, and and so on is doing the planet a world of good right uh, so in that sense i think there's that kind of activism i find the second category of just social media warriors keyboard warriors just going to random people's comments and and then say, you know saying that you know how how do you feel you know uh, killing a chicken and and eating it and all of that that i think is just completely utterly stupid and ignorant right uh, and 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 the reason for that is that people just don't understand the reality of the world right uh, and i want to sort of put some very interesting statistics a lot of that category of activism uh comes from a very western idea of what veganism is and what it's fighting against which is what i find hilarious the the food world of india is very different americans consume 10 times more animal protein than indians do the most carnivorous indian is consuming 10 times less protein than the average american okay the typical american meal is so protein heavy is that the steak or the other is the centerpiece and then you have other things on the other side in india the centerpiece is rice or wheat then you have like your entire chicken curry will have like some two pieces it's a it's like a great day when somebody gets like a one full leg piece it's like a celebratory moment right I mean, a fish curry will have like two pieces of fish in what is essentially a large amount of gravy right and it was usually so a first, weekend affair you know the, yeah and it's also a very what? special day affair the people are not like eating it like three times a day and so on so that's number one so the per capita consumption here is significantly small so um, the average indian is effectively vegan and you are then going and shouting at someone for enjoying a biryani uh using cruelty and all that nonsense using information and data that you've learned from the west and all the activists you follow from the west right in the in in the us 25% of their greenhouse gases are from uh, beef cattle right what do you think the numbers are in india hey, people have no clue people and you don't have to trust me just go look up the actual government data right 74% of all greenhouse gases in india come from vehicles and energy energy production your electricity coal and natural gas running factories uh, lighting homes and cars and and trucks that's 74% 14% is food only 14% in that half is dairy cattle so i particularly find it hilarious when vegetarians are like you guys are screwing the planet by eating meat i said boss the biggest contributor of greenhouse gases in food in india is milk and do you know why because milk only comes from half of the cattle population because only the females so what do you do with the males you export them india is the world's largest exporter of beef because we have one third of the world's cattle because if you kept them around here your greenhouse gases are going to go through the roof right so you you are you are, you are exporting them as beef right so therefore that's number one right the second largest contributor of greenhouse gases is rice everybody thinks you look at a paddy field the thing that comes to your mind is not a greenhouse gas emitter oh it's a plant it's green it's beautiful of course it must be capturing carbon you bet not because rice plantations they're forever standing in water there is a specific kind of bacteria that is there in that water that ends up leaking carbon so a rice a paddy field a few acres of paddy field about as bad as a factory how many people realize this when you look at a factory you know it's polluting it's greenhouse gas you look at a paddy field 
you think it's amazing no it, it is it is a it is a it is a net carbon positive carbon negative right so this and india grows so much rice right and on top of that your punjab farmers will burn all of the stubble and then generate more ca- carbon as well right so therefore so in in that entire this thing i saw that chart poultry and uh, uh, poultry which is the third contributor does not even show up on that chart because that is how little meat indians actually eat right so which is why i i really just you know because the problem is that i would just you know in so many videos i would essentially keep saying people should eat more plants right uh, as much as possible it's good for the planet it's also good for your health and so on right it will say that and then one post about egg and then they'll be like some bunch of actors will land up and i said you guys are just you know you yeah, you yeah, you have no clue what you're speaking about right yeah yeah and and i think it is also it's also very weird sense of moral this thing that somehow animal it's not even a sustainability greenhouse which anyway is bullshit right now that we've seen then the argument will be cruelty right a very carefully cherry picked definition of cruelty right uh anyone who has to grow their own rice will will stop eating rice have you any idea how notoriously human exploitative uh, agriculture is rice is one of the worst sugarcane is one of the worst right there is no there is no rice agriculture without human suffering so you have to be okay with that suffering right 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 uh, and and by the way to to grow an acre of rice you have to ensure you kill millions of other beings millions of other plants millions of other living things to make sure that's the only species of living thing in that acre that's how you get your food any agricultural field is a crime against nature nobody saying saying that because human beings are first moral that we got to eat you can't starve right uh, letting people starve is a far greater crime than than killing an animal right i think we can all agree on that right on the other hand you kill one if a farmer having some goats and chickens running around the house right completely by the way that protein is free because the chickens will feed on agricultural waste and then produce more chickens that is how animal husbandry was born we domesticated animals that can turn agricultural waste into protein that 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 you can consume of course we've grown large and it's not sustainable because now everybody does not have goats and chickens running around now you have these giant cage farms where you cruelly treat chickens yes terrible absolutely terrible and if there was an alternative available we must go towards it but i think you know uh, you can't ask someone to change their eating habits uh, and say on the basis of this nonsensical arguments about uh, cruelty and so on right uh, and i think you know that's what i uh, probably uh, the the only time where i said you know what I, i've largely been very very sort of polite and positive on instagram but that one single time i was like you know what this is just absolutely lost yeah and i think one of the reasons why people have this Uh, vegan-friendly awareness more than the other way around is because of lack of documentaries. I mean, you have documentaries like Sea Spiracy or Food Incorporated, which, which yes. largely talk about animal exploitation, but not so yeah, much absolutely. about how bad agriculture. It's cherry pick, right? It's all it's all cherry pick, right? I mean, the, I think in one general, I think people need to think that if your if your way of understanding the world is through Netflix documentaries. i'm sorry that you're going to get a very shallow understanding of the world yeah. right uh, social media and netflix and all the likes are not in the business of informing you they're in the business of making entertaining content that goes viral uh, and sensationalism and negativity and cherry picking goes viral uh, and so actual knowledge is actually messy complicated you need to read 
several layers to it to, there are several layers to it you need to exp- you need to look at several aspects of uh, the world right um, and 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 the, here's the interesting thing right the carbon footprint of a carnivorous indian meat eater is lower than an american vegan yeah because because the the, guy, the, the that american vegan is probably driving some suv <laughs> or for that matter a tesla whose production is insanely carbon uh, negative right all those rare earth metals and all of that okay so it's said that people have no sense of uh, proportion uh, and and people really bad at numbers in general right and really bad at denominators people casually forget denominators everyone looks at only the numerator right so that i think is a engineering way of uh, looking at it if you will yeah so mm-hmm. i think that that's the whole thing yeah yeah so thank you krish so much for uh, for giving us time i think it was a very very entertaining episode uh one of i think you will have to come back to the show once more to to because time oh. is is just so less and we have so much to discuss uh but i hope yeah. you had a good time uh talking about music and food it was great fun yeah for a change it was actually about music and uh, i'm sort of slightly bored talking about food now so at least in the last two years yeah i can imagine and that concludes my conversation with krish ashok i even lost track of what all topics we covered during our call but it's safe to say that we will definitely want him back on the show again well i will be back with another guest till then peace